I'm Neil Barton. You're listening to The Background Report. I interviewed Brian Bates for this episode. Brian is a private investigator who was on the defense team for Daniel Holtzclaw, a former Oklahoma City police officer. In 2014, Daniel was charged with 36 counts of sexual assault. In 2015, he was convicted of 18, exactly half of those charges. That number alone might sound damning, but the case against him was weaker than you could imagine. Hello. Hey, Brian, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's good to talk to you. You're kind of an entertaining guy. I've been watching your videos for a few years now. Awesome. John TV videos. Can you tell me a little bit about your history in Oklahoma City and how you came around to working on Daniel Holtzclaw's defense team? Well, I'm... um... You know, born and raised in Oklahoma and actually kind of started off everything pretty normal. In about 1996, I was uh, working at a hospital in their marketing and public relations department. I'm in my early 20s and just happened to live in a neighborhood that was literally infested with street prostitution. And I just kind of did what anyone, you know, living in their neighborhood would want to do. I went to stand up against the criminal element. And the only only weapon I had that seemed to work was a video camera. And so I used a video camera to go after the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the pimps. That ended up making the news. The news dubbed me the video vigilante. That ended up transforming into the website johntv.com. And then just through my interest in the criminal justice system and all, I finally decided to pursue my own accreditation as an armed private investigator through CLEAT and got licensed in that about 10, 11 years ago and started doing defense work for uh, attorneys and started doing some fairly high-profile cases with Daniel Holtzclaw's case probably being the most high-profile. So you've always been a, a thorn in the side of Oklahoma City law enforcement somewhat, right? Because you're kind of calling them out for not doing their jobs. You know, it's gone back and forth. When I very first came on the scene, um, law enforcement really didn't know what to think about me. This is 1996. You're still dealing with camcorders where, you, you know, you're just out of the phase where you actually got to wear the VCR over your shoulder as you carry yeah. the camera. People like now, everyone has a video camera, but back then they didn't. And and the one credit I will give to Oklahoma City Police Department is I didn't get a lot of pushback from them. They, they realized this is where things were going and they needed to figure out how they were going to deal with citizens with video cameras. I never got a lot of direct pushback from them. Actually, initially, many of the officers sort of embraced what I was doing. I had officers that really were kind of were, were violating some of their own policies. They were sharing what would be considered pretty private information of individuals, of, of some of the wrongdoers, so that I could track them and I could track their warrants and I could call in if they had warrants and things. And it really wasn't until an incident happened, uh, what they just dubbed the Donald Pete tape, where I videotaped some officers in a pretty aggressive arrest of a John. Uh, it was two white officers and a, and a black male John. And it got it got pretty, a lot of force ended up getting used in that arrest. And um, that, that video got broadcast worldwide. And once that happened, I think the police, for whatever reason, decided I wasn't their cheerleader, that I was somehow the enemy. And at least with administration within the police department, they really didn't like me anymore. The, the officers on the street, I still get a lot of kudos. I'll actually get officers who pull me over every now and then on purpose just to shake my hand and say, <laughs> hey, that guy that, that you videotaped that one day, I you know, I wanted to let you know we finally took him down on a big charge. I've had 911 operators interrupt my call when I call in to say, hey, we love your videos. So 
It really just depends on on which officer it is and whether or not they're upper brass or not. Upper brass doesn't like me because I do call them out. Did any of the video work you did ever lead to the arrest of any pimps? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, several videos I've done. We've actually got one that's working right now. It was an individual. I've been a thorn in his side for many, many years. I ended up helping send him to prison on a several year stay. He got out. I told him in court that if he stayed in Oklahoma and he continued to pimp women, I'd send him right back to prison. And sure enough, he was only out a few months and I received some information that he was actually recruiting young girls from a, uh, a high school here in town and was prostituting out these underage girls. And I was able to get the evidence that was needed, provided that over to police. Police then took over at that point and arrested him. He then got charged federally and one of his uh, co-defendants has already pled guilty, probably because they're going to testify against him. And then I'll probably testify against him also in federal court if it goes to court. So, yeah, I've, I, I mean, my my videos, they impact uh, the Johns naturally. And then they, they do impact uh, the prostitutes. Sometimes that's unfortunate. And sometimes the, the prostitution is just the least of the crimes that these people are committing. And then it, it also does impact the pimps. Of course, when I first started this in 96, we only referred to them as pimps. Now we use the term human traffickers. That that term really wasn't used at all until the last seven or eight, nine years. And now a lot of these people who were previously facing misdemeanor or very minor felony charges are now facing extremely serious uh, felony human trafficking charges, which come with mandatory prison time. Yeah. When you hear the word human traffickers when i do anyways initially my mind goes to like these shadowy worldwide underground organizations that snatch up middle class white girls like in that movie taken you know i know it's a goofy movie but sure pimps are human traffickers as well well a lot of people don't realize here and 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 people need to understand prostitution it's that it's a very controversial topic and some people say hey it's consenting adults they're doing something that happens in in singles bars every night you know those sorts of things. People need to understand my I've been doing this for 22 years and I, I've always been very clear in that entire time that my activism only targets certain types of prostitution. And those types are forced, organized and public. If it's being done on the streets where you and I have to deal with it, I'm going to target it. If it's part of a larger criminal organization, I'm going to target it. And then if it's, of course, if you're an actual human trafficker and you're forcing people um, to prostitute, then I'm going to target you also. But if you're just some individual male or female and prostitution is what you've decided you're going to do to make ends meet and you're going to do it online behind closed doors and you're not causing problems for anybody, you're never going to hear from me or John TV. Yeah, you're not making the streets less safe or bringing criminal elements out in the open. Right. In those cases, I truly feel that is a victimless crime. Um, society as a whole isn't being victimized. It's not affecting your or my quality of life. It's something I wish people wouldn't engage in. It's extremely dangerous. I've known many people who've been murdered um, engaging in prostitution. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's something that me or the government should, uh, should be meddling in. How did you end up being the private investigator working on this high-profile case. Daniel Holtzclaw, he was charged in very short order. He's charged with sexually assaulting various women with criminal backgrounds, right. lower-class women that came from these bad neighborhoods. But how did you come about getting on board with this case? Like I said, I'd been a private investigator for some time by, mm -hmm. the, by the time Daniel was charged. And one of the attorneys that I do an awful lot of work for, uh, Mr. Scott Adams here in Oklahoma City, is a very high-profile, very prominent criminal defense attorney. And I already work a lot of his cases. And he had actually, the Holtzclaw family come to him and had hired him. And then he came to me 
and hired me to do what I what I typically do in cases like this initially, which is, believe it or not, try to figure out what our client's lying about. <laughs> yeah. uh, you would think if a criminal defendant was going to be honest to anybody, they would be honest to their attorney, but they're not. They lie. They almost always lie about what it is that they did or to the extent that they did it. So initially, my role was very small. My role was simply to sit down with Daniel, get his side of the story, look over the discovery or the evidence that we had at that point, and then provide a report to the defense attorneys as to what I thought was the probability of the crimes he may have actually committed. That grew from there. Uh, Daniel and I did have a rapport. It was actually kind of funny. The very first time I walked in and met him, and he's a big guy, and I walked in and he looked up at me and he just kind of snickered, kind of in a, in a, in a cocky way. And he said, I know who you are. He said, they taught us all about you at the academy. And he was <laughs> referring to the police academy. They literally spend part of their training talking about me and my workings and, and stuff with the police department and how to deal with me on the street if you come into contact with me and things like that. So he didn't mean it as a compliment. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I laughed about it, too. And we talked about it for a minute. And I got to be quite honest with you. We saw him every Thursday. He was out on bond most of the time. He did eventually end up violating his bond twice and was finally remanded to custody until his trial. And he could leave. He was staying with his parents in Enid, and he could come to Oklahoma City to meet with his defense team every Thursday. And he would show up early in the morning, and he would stay till late in the afternoon or evening, and then he'd head back to Enid, which is a couple-hour drive. Every single time he would start off our meeting, because he met with me pretty exclusively, and he would say, so, do you think I did it? And I got to tell you, for months, I would look at him, and I'd say, Daniel, I, I, I do. I think you're guilty. I just haven't figured out what you've done yet. And surprisingly, a lot of criminal defendants would want me off the team immediately because they want cheerleaders. They want people that's going to rah, rah, rah. And I got to give a lot of credit to Daniel. He actually wanted me to stay on the team because I did think he was guilty because he knew I was looking for any piece of evidence that would prove his guilt. And he, he was convinced I would never find that, and that would make me fight harder to see that he was proven not guilty. And it really wasn't until about... Oh, maybe a week to two weeks before the trial. And he asked me again. I said, Daniel, for the first time I can tell you, I 100% believe you didn't commit a single one of the allegations against you. And it was because I had gone through every something. People have all kinds of opinions about the Daniel Holtzclaw case. But the one thing I can guarantee those people, they have never seen all of the evidence or lack of evidence that I have. They didn't sit in the courtroom. They didn't spend hundreds of hours talking with Daniel. I can't find a single shred of direct evidence that proves that Daniel Holtzclaw committed a single crime. And not only is there nothing that proves it, because sometimes that's just lawyer talk for, yeah, my client did it, but you can't prove it. There literally is nothing in my mind that supports a single one of these allegations. And that is what my professional obligation to Daniel ended the day that he was sentenced. So we're talking, you know, we're going on three years um, ago that that happened. And I've continued to advocate for Daniel. I don't get paid by his family. A matter of fact, sometimes I say things that the family doesn't like because I'm I'm brutally honest about the case, um, the, the positives and the negatives. And I advocate for Daniel because in my 11 or 12 or so years of being a private investigator, he is the only client that I've ever worked with that I can 100% say was wrongly convicted in a serving time he does not deserve. I also feel that the system got it completely wrong in this case. Can, you, can we go back a little bit? Can you tell me who sure. Daniel Holtzclaw is besides he's this big guy? He's 260 pounds of solid muscle. What? He is. And, and believe it or not, he's bigger now than he was back then. He's at least as big as he was when he was trying to get into the NFL. 
he is a huge guy. I mean, he's he's no secret. I'm not not giving away the the uh, the storyline here. He he's in prison and uh, he he continuously wins these weightlifting competitions and bodybuilding competitions. The, the guy is a monster. And I got to be honest, anyone who knows me knows I am not a cheerleader of the police. I'm very controversial with a lot of police. I don't cheerlead them. I tend to point out their faults. I don't generally like police officers when I meet them either on their job or when they're off duty. And Daniel would probably be an officer I wouldn't have a lot to do with if it wasn't for this case, mainly because he's a lot younger than me and he's a jock. I was raised Mm -hmm. by a single mom. I know virtually nothing about sports. And so he and I just wouldn't connect on any real level. But the guy, I got to tell you, is a really good guy and his family is a really good family. He, uh, in 2010, graduated from Eastern Michigan University. Before that, he lived in Enid. He played on the football team. I mean, the, he had an he had a reputation for being cocky, for being very confident, but the guy was also voted best physique his senior year. And I got to tell you, if my classmates would have voted me best physique my senior year, I'd have been cocky too. Oh, how could um, that not get to your head? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this was a guy who he worked very very hard he totally focused in on being the you know the uh, being the biggest guy that he could possibly be but he didn't have a reputation for being a bad guy and I say that with full confidence and I'm not just basing this off of what Daniel told me and his family told me the prosecution literally went all the way back to his high school and interviewed dozens of people who went to high school with him or that were teachers when he was high school were girls that he dated in high school some of those relationships didn't end on a positive note hello it's high school it often doesn't they couldn't find and even acknowledge this in the reports acknowledge this in the courtroom they could not find a single person who would say anything bad about Daniel beyond, well, he was a big guy. He was the star football player. So he was kind of cocky. You know, he got all the girls, a lot of jealousy, but nobody was like, oh, he was a bully. Oh, he was involved in these little petty crimes. Oh, nobody would say anything like that about Daniel. And if they could have found a single person who had done that one jilted lover, anybody, he dated people of mixed race. So this whole, he's a racist. He's all, that's not true. He dated women of color. He dated lots of people. He dated, he literally was a guy who dated bikini models. And, uh, he, he was a guy that grew up and sports was his thing. And he went to Eastern Michigan and he was a standout there and he tried out for the NFL. Didn't work out for him. I think Daniel's biggest thing was he just wasn't real fast. That was his deal. He never developed the speed um, that I think he, he was known as a leader. Um, his stats, he stood out, but he just didn't have the speed. And so he decided, hey, if, if I'm not going to be able to realize my number one dream, which is to be in the NFL, then my number two dream is to follow not only in my father, but in my mother's footsteps. Both of them, well, his father is still a police officer, but his mother was a police officer overseas also. And he decided he would become a police officer. And so he graduated in 2010. He tried out for the NFL. He didn't make it. And in uh, September of 2011, he was hired by the Oklahoma City Police Department, completed his training in 2012, and then uh, kind of went on from there. So and when all this happened, he had not been a police officer for very long. He completed his, his, his training in 2012. Oh, yeah, just a couple of years. The, the allegations and all happened in 2014. I can honestly tell you, and I, and I invite people to come forward with any information they have, 
they just can't find anything on this guy's record. And, and the court record reflects that. Not a single person testified against this man's character. And in Oklahoma County, they line up character witnesses to say but anything you've ever done, any person you've ever pissed off is going to show up at your criminal trial to say bad things about you. And they couldn't do it in this case. Do they do that during the sentencing phase, typically, or during the actual trial? They bring no, during the actual trial. During the actual trial, just to show a pattern of behavior, just to be able to show this is a guy who has a propensity for violence. I mean, you're talking about this is a really, really big guy who, by the time he was accused of these things, already had well over a dozen use of force, formal use of force allegations and investigations leveled against him. Every single one of them was found in his favor. And I credit that most of those came from the, his time in the gang unit. He was in the gang unit in uh, May of 2013. They put him in the gang unit. He was he it was just a short rotation just to give him a little taste of it, which mm-hmm. he completed his training in uh, August of 2012. And by May of 2013, he's in the gang unit. That's pretty unheard of. And he, he did that for a few months. And during that time, these big bag gang members who act like they're so tough – the moment he got a hold of them, they were crying to some supervisor <laughs> that this officer had been way too rough with them. But he was one of these guys. He was like a pit bull on the street, and a car drives by, and it just goes after it. If you run from him, he's going to go after you, and he's going to catch you. And even though he had all these use of force allegations against him, not a single one was found to actually be valid. He was just an officer. We do have officers that if you take off running, they just kind of look and shrug their shoulders and go, oh, well, I, I probably couldn't catch you anyway. And man, Daniel thought he was back on the football field and he would catch catch you. Working the neighborhoods that he did, I imagine it's a little difficult not to have use of force complaints against you at some point, right? Oh, obviously. I mean, not only was he in the gang unit, but then when he started patrolling on his own, they put him in what what is the highest crime area of our city. They put him in our northeast side by our capital. This is an area where you would assume your units would patrol with a partner. They don't. Our our Oklahoma City Police Department is very understaffed because it's, it doesn't have a lot of money. And so mm-hmm. you have officers. He's working overnights in the roughest part of the city, and those people don't get those assignments by accident. They only put officers in those positions that they know can handle themselves. And and officers that did testify at trial admitted Daniel was the guy that when you got in trouble and backup was coming and you heard that Daniel was first on the scene, you were relieved. Because yeah. that was going to be an officer that when he got out of the car, usually most people stopped whatever they were doing because he was a giant when he got out of the car. Um, but if <laughs> it, he had to put hands on you, he would. It, yeah, but and it wasn't vice versa. It's not like he was the kind of officer that needed to call for backup a lot of times when he got in physical situations. Is that right? Exactly. And, I, and honestly, I think that was part of I think that was a character flaw with him. I think he was overconfident. I think that's why he did some things that I think were not smart when he was on patrol that jeopardized his safety and, and that in turn would jeopardize the public safety. And um, I think as a young 20 something year old who's always been told what a macho man's man you are, I think he had a hard time asking for help. And so he was out there kind of thought he was a, a, a one man, you know, a little Superman out there, or his own his own crime fighting unit. And I think some of those things are what made him ripe for these allegations. He's in his early 20s. When you're that age, your brain's not even done developing yet. So you're enthusiastic, you're new on the force, and you're just chasing your job pretty aggressively. Exactly. He he wanted to make a name for himself. His father's with another police department here in Oklahoma. His father is an officer within that department. Daniel wanted to go up through the ranks. He wanted to go up through the ranks very quickly. 
I think he was a little naive about how you do that. I think he was a little cocky about how you do that. But he also had all of those characteristics that you really want in an officer that's going to be patrolling dangerous streets by themselves. I think he needed a few more years to settle in and season himself. And um, I just think it literally was a perfect storm um, that happened to him. And unfortunately, he's paying for that right now. Janie Liggins is uh, someone that he pulled over on his way home off duty, right? And she's the one that got this ball rolling. Right. That was in uh, June. She was actually allegedly his last victim, but she was the first person to really come forward. She was the first person, in my opinion, to act like a like you would expect a victim to act. None mm-hmm. of the other accusers ever acted like actual victims. She actually, and, and, and I'll give it, she I, she was the, the accuser I gave the most credibility to that I really looked into the hardest because she does on the surface appear to be acting like you would expect a victim to act. And what happened in, in the early morning hours of June 18th of 2014, Daniel's getting off of his shift about right at 2 a.m. He's in the Spring Lake District. He's only about a mile, mile and a quarter from where the incident happens. He He's heading home. He heads home. He turns off his computer, which I'm, I'm sure you'll want to talk about that here in a minute because it was a huge point of contention in this case. He turns off his computer. It's 2 a.m. He's worked a 14-hour shift. He's headed home. His girlfriend's waiting for him at home. She's beautiful, literally, bikini model, waiting for him. He's heading home. And doesn't get but about three quarters of a mile. And on Northeast 50th Street, as he's approaching Lincoln, he sees this little red four-door car in front of him. The windows are blacked out. The street is dark. So anyone who wants to try to contend that, that Daniel was profiling these black females and he saw this black female alone in this car is dead wrong. You, can, you can't see in this car during the daylight. And those pictures were shown I saw at a trial. picture of it, yeah. You, you can't tell what's in this car. Well, the car starts drifting across the center lanes a little bit. It's 2 a.m. Daniel, the gung-ho police officer, decides as they pull up to the stoplight and the light turns green, he lights this car up. He turns on his strobes. Car pulls over. Daniel gets out, walks up to the window, Starts talking to the female a little bit. If you if you've watched any interviews with Janie Liggins online, if you Google Janie Liggins, there's she's done plenty of interviews. Her natural demeanor when she talks, you you would quite frankly you'd think the woman was high, but that's just her demeanor. Yeah. Um, because I've watched her enough do it. That's just how she is. Her eyes are are almost closed when she talks. She talks in sort of this drawl that you think she's slurring her speech, but but that's just her. And so he thought, okay, I'm dealing with the woman on this part of town probably on drugs or or possibly drunk, possibly a prostitute out at this time of night. And she's got an open cup in her car, like a 7-Eleven type cup. Mm -hmm. And he asks, you know, what's in it? She says nothing. It's just Kool-Aid. You can smell it. He he sniffs it, says he doesn't smell anything in it. Now he's going to decide, what do I do with this person? Because he asked for a driver's license, asked for insurance. She didn't have either one of those. She hadn't had a driver's license in like 30 years. Doesn't even remember why it got revoked. And he's like, God, now what do I do? Now, people do have to understand, and this was testified to at trial by the prosecution, people without valid driver's license or insurance is extremely common in this part of town. In Oklahoma in general, 33% of people do not have car insurance. And on this part of town, it's even higher than that. And tons of those people don't have driver's license, and tons of those people are out in public with warrants for their arrest. Um, So none of that particularly shocked Daniel. You and I wouldn't drive around without a driver's license or without insurance and with warrants, but Janie Liggins didn't have warrants, but she didn't have a driver's license or insurance. Daniel's concern at this point was, I can let her go without the license. I can let her go without the insurance. i got to make sure she's not drunk. Mm -hmm. So he has her get out of the car. She goes and sits in the backseat of his car. 
He goes through her front seat looking a little bit, just saying, you know, can I find some dope? Is there going to be an illegal gun? Is there anything in this car? He noticed she's, she's got a pill bottle in her name, prescription on it, puts that away, talks to her for a few minutes. All of this is actually being captured by a security camera that's on the corner of a building right there. That camera, you can't see it real clear, but you can tell people are moving around and what's happening. And yep. then after several minutes of talking to her, I think about 10 or 11 minutes, which turned out to be an average stop for Daniels, about anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes. And he ends up letting her go. And he really doesn't think anything else about it. He leaves, she leaves. It isn't until the next day that they are, you know, when they're doing lineup, I say the next day, it's actually later that day. This is 2 a.m. He's going to be back at work around 3 p.m. They want to know, did anyone make a stop at 50th and Lincoln? And he immediately says, yeah, that was me. And um, they already had a pretty good idea it was him, but they wanted to see if he'd fess up, and he did. Yeah. And then that turned into his his interrogation. And that's she is the linchpin accuser. That started the ball. No one was looking at Daniel for anything. No one had accused Daniel of anything. This is what got the ball rolling. I have to tell you that interrogation, and you're the only one that posted it, it, the entire thing unedited, right. unredacted. It's some of the strangest police tactics I've ever seen. Detective Kim Davis and Rocky Gregory are sitting there talking to him about their masturbation habits. It's amazing. And what's so bizarre, when you read the comments, and and some people have reposted it, but it's usually watermarked down there. You can tell it's my version that's up there. But you read the comments, and people are absolutely convinced one way or the other. And they're polar opposites. People look at this and go, oh, my God, how could anybody think this is anything but an innocent man? Other people look at it and go, oh, my God, he's so obviously guilty. I got to tell you, when I first got involved – well, not when I first got involved in this case, but fairly early on in the case, I was given that, that interrogation video. It's a long one, and I watched it. I don't know Daniel, though. So I can watch his body movements. I can see things. I'm cleat trained in in how you do interrogations and all. The only thing that stuck out to me was how unprofessional these uh, law enforcement officers were, these detectives were. They'll try to say they were talking that way because they want to get down on the level of the person that they're interviewing and all. Yeah, but that, that, what, that wasn't his level. He was no, clearly he was embarrassed and uncomfortable with it. You know? he was to- he, and what was not only was he noticeably uncomfortable with that sort of conversation, he didn't join in. He didn't know yeah. what to say. He's never been around people talking about which hand they masturbate with. He's ne- I mean, he, he didn't know what to do. He just started squirming in his chair. First thing I did was I brought in his, his mother and his father and his sister and his girlfriend at the time. And I said, you all watch this video. You know, Daniel, you all are getting ready to literally invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in his defense. You all tell me, is this someone who's lying or not? They watched that video. They came out of there with tears in their eyes, and they said, that is Daniel 100% being honest. Once I got to know Daniel, I agreed with that. That is Daniel being being honest. There was nothing that he did that would suggest he was hiding anything, that he even understood what he was being questioned about. Daniel later, when I talked to him, he honestly thought— here we go. Here's another use of force complaint going to be filed against me. She's going to say I was disrespectful to her. She was going to say that when she sat in the car and I stood at the open door that I was in her personal space. You, When you watch that interrogation, it isn't until you get close to the end that you even know that Daniel is even being told what he's being accused of. And even at that point, his demeanor didn't change. He's just like, you know, I've been through this. I think it was 19 use of force allegations. He had been through 19 of those up to that point. And as long as he told the truth and remained calm, everything worked out fine. So he that was what he did again. He remained calm. He told the truth and really thought the whole thing would just go away. I honestly, I was in his cell just 
hours before the verdict was read, and he was convinced that he would be exonerated because that's how the criminal justice serve system that he worked for, that's how it worked in his mind. He had oh. never seen the other side of the system. Yeah, he was still trusting in the system even in those late hours. Well, huh? In that interrogation video, going back to that, when you watch it, not only are the, the uh, detectives just completely unprofessional and all over the place with their questioning, just the little things that they did. I mean, you have a guy that you think has committed these you know atrocious crimes and he's agreeing to a lie detector, and you don't already have that set up ready to go in the next room before this guy lawyers up. You want to take his clothing from him, but you think he's a rapist, and you leave his underwear on him. You don't take his underwear from him. You don't do a warrant to get his cell phone. You don't get a warrant to get his computers at home. You don't go to his apartment and get his other four changes of police uniform out of his closet so you can test them. You don't do any of those things. It was it was the most Barney Five type of detective work that I've ever seen, and it actually only got worse from there. You raise a good point. Why wouldn't they have the polygraph machine ready right next door? Because no lawyer worth his salt is going to let his client take a polygraph test. No, no that's what's interesting. Is, of course, you watch it, which I invite people, go online, watch the interrogation video. Um, you can see it at holdsclawtrial.com, which is a website that I maintain. He said, they ask him, he says, do everything, do DNA, do fingerprints, do everything. They ask him, will you do a lie detector? He says, yes. Well, we'll have to set that up. Well, as a police officer with the FOP, Fraternal Order Police, he has a lawyer that's provided to him through the union. That lawyer, they contacted that lawyer a day or two later and said, okay, we want to do a uh, we want to do a lie detector. And that lawyer, without consulting with Daniel, just said, no, we never allow police officers to do a lie detector test. Why? Because despite what other people say, oh, you can beat a lie detector, that is not an easy thing to do. Police officers are not trained how to do that. And the FOP is always afraid that their officer may have done something wrong, so they're not going to let him take one of those lie detectors. Daniel wanted to. Once we got the case and once we thoroughly investigated the case, and I spoke with his attorney and said, this guy, he's 100%. He's willing to, to roll the dice. He says he didn't do it. He says he can pass a lie detector. We contacted Prosecutor Galen Giger. We offered for Daniel to do a lie detector. They refused to allow. Well, I'm sure they would have allowed him. We offered him on the condition that for any accuser that he passed, they had to drop those charges and they wouldn't do it. So why would we submit him to a lie detector if it's not going to change any of the charges? But Galen has gone up against Scott Adams enough that he knew Scott would not subject his client to a lie detector if he didn't already know that or feel very confident that that person was going to pass that lie detector, so they wouldn't let him do it. Isn't there a risk in that, too? And lie detectors are notorious for false positives as well. They can be, but the person we were going to use was the person that had actually already given Daniel a lie detector when he applied for the police department. Oh, okay. um, that, that's, that's, the, that's the polygrapher that we use um, at the law firm that, that I work for a lot, They because so many... Polygraphs are incredibly accurate. It's the human who interprets them that can often be inaccurate. You don't get a light that pops up that says truth, lie. You have to be able to read the data that's being provided. So we think, okay, if you've got a polygraph examiner who you all use when you hire police officers and all, we're going to use that same one to try to show whether or not our people are telling the truth or not. And they knew that that's who we use to do those tests and that it would be extremely valid. They couldn't very well discredit the guy they use themselves. So they just said, no, we're not going to, we, he can take one, but we're not going to drop any of the charges. Okay. Well, why would we, 
we couldn't submit that in the courtroom, so why do it? Yeah, and I can't believe they didn't take his underwear either. That's the other thing that shocked me. Not only did they not take his underwear, but then when they do take his clothing, and, and you see it clearly on the interrogation video, when they do take it, the detective, Rocky Gregory, doesn't even bother to put gloves on. He takes his hands, no telling who all he's touched, who all's DNA may be on him. He actively in, speaks to Daniel's accusers, and he takes his hand, grabs Daniel's pants, and shoves them inside this paper bag. Any DNA that is on him is now all over that clothing that he just put in there. It's funny now. I've actually had to provide copies of the interrogation, copies of other discovery evidence to other law enforcement agencies because they literally use it in their training to show other officers this is what you don't do. Is that right? Absolutely. Wow. And from there, they believed Janie Liggins for whatever reason, and they decided this is our victim profile and he's done it before. So then they go looking up the history of people he's pulled over. Is that right? Right. Here's what's crazy. So six early morning of June 18, 2014, she makes her allegation. And there's tons of like I could talk for weeks about this. I mean, this the Holtz call needs to be his own, you know, 30 episode podcast out there. But there's a lot that goes on with how she reported this crime that would that would cast doubt on the legitimacy of her claims. But beyond that, if you just want to take her at face value on 618, she makes the allegation by 620. This is the only person who's made any allegation naming Daniel Holtzclaw. The police reports indicate that two days later, they had already created what they will then be called, quote unquote, the perfect victim profile. Within two days, they decided that he was a serial rapist, even though they had no other people complaining at that moment. And they started going in and they started trying to figure out who are his victims? They call that confirmation bias, and they mm -hmm. were up to their eyeballs in confirmation bias. But not only that, on 623, just a few days, five days after the alleged rape of Janie Liggins, who she's always testified that she thinks that police took her allegations seriously and that they were seriously investigating it, she ends up going on the news. She goes on the news to claim that she's been raped by this officer. She's trying to do exclusives with news outlets. I've personally never heard of a sexual assault or rape victim who actively seeks out the media when they know there's an active investigation trying to identify and prosecute this person. The investigator certainly did not want her going on the news. She did it anyway, and I think from that moment, that supports the case that she was going to file a multi-million dollar lawsuit, which she did, and so did the other accusers. And I, I think that that's what this comes down to the, the simplest motivator of all of them. It comes down to money, and I think that's what she did. And mm -hmm. I think confirmation bias is what drove the investigators. They initially decided we're dealing with a serial offender, even though we have nobody else complaining. So they pulled all the females that Daniel had had contact with. Well, they found out very quickly that was a humongous list. It was way too big of a list for a couple of detectives to go out and weed through. Without any other information or evidence coming in, they decided we need to make this smaller. And so a Lieutenant Musney, a name that you don't often hear, but his name, his fingerprints are all over these police reports. Lieutenant Musney says, you know what? We need to make this list smaller. Let's only look at black females because Janie Liggins is black. So let's only look at black females. Okay, we'll only look at black females. Well, this is the northeast part of town. It's the Spring Lake District. That list is huge. Okay, we got to make this list smaller. Arbitrarily, okay, let's only look at black females that have a history of prostitution or drug use. 
that doesn't even match the profile of Janie Liggins. She has no history of prostitution right. or drug use. 30-something years ago, she was in a drug house when it was raided. It didn't result in any charges. I'm not going to hold that against her. She has no history of this. And yet, they've now created a profile that doesn't even match his only accuser. So now, who do they do? They start knocking on the doors of black females who have a history of prostitution and drug arrests. And what do you know? They start finding people that start going, okay, sure, he did it. Of course, they only start contacting these people after Janie Liggins has gone on the news and after Janie Liggins says there's a police officer out there raping people. And here's what's interesting. When you go through all of his accusers, and it's far more than the 13, there were actually 21 accusers. Eight accusers prior to trial admitted that they were lying, told the police, okay, I'm lying. I was just doing it to try to help the other people, whatever. And so they whittled it down to 13 who wouldn't say that they were lying. And that's when we got there to this point in the, in the case. And we had women literally who they would say, Daniel Holtzclaw didn't do anything to me. Nothing happened during that arrest. And Rocky Gregory wouldn't let it go. He I, saw, yeah. I saw one of those rocking. Say, are you sure? He's, this is a really bad dude. We really got to get him off the street. Are you sure nothing happened? Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, I get it. I get where you're coming from. Yeah, there was this one thing that happened. And when you look at the allegations against Daniel Holtzclaw, until they show his picture on the news, everyone that's accusing him has this very vague description. They're calling him a short black man. They're calling him all these weird descriptions until his photo hits the news. Then everyone accuses that accuses him after that has a much more refined description of who their attacker is. Um, and this was totally driven by the media and by the fact that they were, they call these women perfect victims. I've always called them the perfect accusers. These are people who have spent their entire lives lying to police, trying to one-up the system, trying to get by with a hustle, without having a real job, without doing anything legitimate. And all of a sudden, we're, we're supposed to take them at face value and we're supposed to give them credibility. And we've become such a PC culture that how dare I question the credibility of someone who's trying to destroy a, a police officer's life with these allegations. Their entire life is built on the fact that they're not Credible. I'm not saying that people who are involved in prostitution or drugs or crimes can't be victims of sexual assault or rape. I'm not at all. But when you don't have any direct evidence and you don't have any independent uh, third party witnesses, all you have is someone's word then the only thing you have left to do is look at their credibility. And credibility is something I've always been taught is something you build your entire life. I understand that some of their stories changed at one point or another, but yet Daniel's story has never changed, right? He never denied pulling any these women over or having contact with them on the dates and times that he was right. accused of. Sure. Right. There's so much misinformation or misunderstanding of what's being presented. For one, Daniel's story has never changed. He's always admitted, I came into contact with all these people. People point to the GPS. You don't need the GPS to prove that Daniel had contact with these women. One, he admits that he had contact with them. Two, virtually all of them, he called in on the radio. And I have those audio files where he calls them in, says, I'm stopping them. I'm talking to this person. I'm talking to that person. Now, his computer was off when he dealt with Janie Liggins. But the very next day when they said, hey, did somebody pull somebody over at 50th and uh, Lincoln? He raised his hand and said, yeah. Yeah, that was me. Um, he, he's never changed. But the women's stories, not only have they changed, even when the women tried to keep their stories straight, 
the evidence didn't match what what they were saying. And in every single case, when they would ask the 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 prosecutor would ask the detective what that means, or when the defense attorney would ask the detective, well, why is the story different than what the GPS shows? Well. Um, you know, it was very stressful. She probably isn't remembering it correct. And I heard that answer over and over and over again. And that's pretty significant when you're dealing with somebody's life. And the biggest example of that would be accuser Sherry Ellis. Most people don't realize Daniel got the most number of years based on Sherry Ellis's accusations. He got 62 years based on her allegations. And this is the woman who swore under oath that her attacker was a short black man. Also in the courtroom, people who've ever attended trials, I guarantee you, you've never seen this happen before. They ask her up on the stand, do you see the person in the courtroom here today that attacked you? And if so, could you point them out? She looks around the courtroom and says, no, I don't, I don't see him anywhere. Right. I've never heard of that happening until this then, case. Then the GPS doesn't match. She claims that Daniel Holtzclaw put her in the patrol vehicle, took her over to what they always call the abandoned schoolyard. It's actually a playground that has an old school on it, but it's a very nice park, and mm-hmm. it just has a building on it that used to be a school. But they, it sounds more sinister to call it the abandoned schoolyard. So they ta- she said, he took me to the abandoned schoolyard, parked, removed me from the car, bent me over, raped me, and then drove away. His GPS shows he was in the area of that park that night, but it shows he he never registered a zero speed. It shows that the vehicle never stopped. So it doesn't match her story at all. Even at the preliminary hearing, the judge said this accuser's description of the defendant doesn't even remotely resemble him. Yet, He got the most number of years based on her testimony. That alone tells me, even though I hate, I hate to criticize a jury because their job is an extremely difficult and emotional job. But that alone tells me that jury did not take their obligation seriously. They couldn't have. Well, yeah. And they probably felt under pressure from the Black Lives Matter people right outside the window screaming at them, right? Absolutely did. you? I've, I've been, again, most people, the only idea they have of a courtroom is maybe watching a few episodes of court TV or something. I encourage people to always go and find out when trials are happening in their jurisdiction and attend those trials and see what it's like. I've been to literally hundreds of trials. I've never seen a circus atmosphere like Judge Henderson allowed in his courtroom. They literally had members of the Black Panthers coming in in their full military regalia with their little berets on, and they're being told, take your beret off inside this courtroom. No hats allowed. They turned around and said, it's part of my religion. And the court bowed down to them and would not make them remove their berets as they came in in their little military uniforms. People were outside the window screaming, giving life chanting and you literally had the judge telling the jury just ignore that his appeal attorney had a perfect statement for that he said it's like throwing a skunk into the courtroom and telling everyone to ignore the smell that wasn't going to happen people literally were being tossed out of the courtroom because they were pulling out cameras and taking pictures of the jurors accuser Shadarion hill was confronted by the detective for the prosecution because she was caught taking a picture of jurors. Oh my God. You only take a picture of jurors if you're trying to intimidate jurors and you're trying to send them a message that if you don't come back with a verdict that we agree with, we're going to identify you. Yeah. Can we talk about Shadarian Hill for a second since you brought her up? Yeah. I saw the video of her interview with Detective Rocky Gregory, is it? You found a little piece of video at the end where they wrap it up and she says, I gave you good evidence, didn't I? Is that good evidence? Because even if he didn't rape nobody, he's 
still getting in contact with these people he arrested, even if he is, didn't rape nobody. Is that not unbelievable? A couple things are unbelievable about this. This is something I get hired to do in cases. I am to go over every piece of discovery, which is the evidence. I'm required to go over every piece of discovery with a fine-tooth comb. I spend hundreds and hundreds of hours going over every piece of evidence. The prosecutors had never heard that statement. We're literally in the courtroom. I've passed a note because I'm going over everything again. I, I pass a note to Mr. Adams saying, this is the quote. He looks at me like, are you kidding me? I'm like, no, it, it's seriously, it's there. It's that you have to go all the way to the end, but it's there. And he, he wants to present it as evidence. The prosecution admits they've never seen or heard that quote before. We have to take a recess. We all have to go back in chambers. I have to play the video through so that everybody could watch it. Then we go in and present it in trial. And this literally is a woman in my opinion, and I think of the obviously in the opinion of the jury, because they, they came back not guilty with her allegations. And she had six, six allegations, the most allegations of anyone who accused Daniel of anything. They found her totally without any credibility and not guilty on all six of her allegations. But she was literally in there saying, so basically, so was this a good story? Even if you really didn't rape none of these people, he deserves to go to prison because he shouldn't be talking to any of us. And to me, that was infuriating because she also admitted Daniel saved her life. A lot of people don't, unless you attended the trial, you don't realize that Daniel Holtzclaw, this wasn't just a case where he went and arrested this female and she accused him of a crime because she was pissed off about getting arrested. Daniel Holtzclaw saved her life. He approached her while she was out selling PCP at an apartment complex. And when she saw Daniel Holtzclaw walk up, she crushed some of those vials on her leg with her hand. That immediately started to soak into her skin. Well, when he brought her out of the car and had handcuffs on her and was running her for wants or warrants, she had another couple of vials in her mouth, or he actually had found those vials and put them on the hood of the car. She bent over, put those vials in her mouth and started chewing them and ingested a couple of vials of PCP. He immediately called for an ambulance for her and escorted her because she's in custody to the hospital where she remained for many, many hours. And he had to stay with her that entire time. And during that time, she admitted that she repeatedly lied to him. And she gave him this sob story about how she was a single mom with multiple kids, which that part was true. Mm -hmm. Most of her kids all came from different dads. That part was true. All of their dads were in prison. That part was true. But where she started lying is saying how she wanted a better life for her and her kids, how she was in college, total lie, and how she just needed some positive influences in her life. And that something like working out or whatever might give her something to focus on and being around other people. Daniel totally fell for this as a 20-something-year-old and thought, you know what, this is somebody I could literally try to mentor. I could try to help this person. I don't know if he was doing it out of the goodness of his heart. I don't know if he was doing it because it would certainly look good if he's trying to get a promotion. Whatever the case may be, Daniel fell for it, and Daniel befriended her. And it even came up during the trial that Daniel had actually friended her on Facebook and sent her messages, which I thought was damning. And when I first read that, I said, oh, Daniel, mm -hmm. we'll eventually get these messages and you are done because I'm sure you were flirting with her. We got these messages in. They were all shown in court. It read like a brother talking to his sister. He contacts her on Facebook and says, hey, you've got these warrants. You need to take care of these warrants or you're going to end up going back to jail. You said you're trying to clean yourself up. You said you're trying to do better for yourself. You've got to take care of this stuff. Well, he didn't get an answer from her. Why? Because she's in jail out of state. She had a warrant out of state and she's actually serving some time for a probation violation out of state. And But he sends her these messages. She finally gets back out of custody and she responds back again 
pretty one, two sentence type responses. Mm -hmm. Daniel's trying to help her out. That's as far as it ever goes. There isn't a, hey, let's meet for coffee. There isn't a, hey, you sure look pretty sexy on your (laughs) Facebook page. Nothing like that existed. And I I truly thought that's what would be there. Uh, Another thing that they did was they pulled his iCloud account because he had an iPhone. He had an iCloud account. And I thought, oh, God. This single guy, good-looking, dates, swimsuit models. There's yeah. no telling what type of stuff is going to be on this guy's iCloud account. i got to tell you, my iCloud account is far more riskier or risque than Daniel Holtzclaw's uh, iCloud account. The only, the only flesh you saw on his account was him posing in front of a mirror. Um, <laughs> this guy, honestly, we all have skeletons in our closet. I- I've yet to see what Daniel's are, and it certainly isn't that he was out there sexually assaulting anybody. The prosecution claimed that he had sexually assaulted three different women during one shift, culminating in Janie Liggins. Is that right? Yeah, they they claim that uh, he he had first assaulted a the teenage girl, the only underage accuser in this whole deal, Adaria Gardner. She mm-hmm. was seventeen at the time. She was also the one where DNA was involved. Another thing that I thought, okay, Daniel, this this means you did it. And it wasn't until I talked to the DNA expert that I realized it didn't mean anything. But they're claiming that he raped Adaria Gardner. Then a couple hours later, raped Kayla Lyles, and then a couple hours after that, raped Janie Liggins. That's they a busy night. That's a busy the, uh, shift, isn't it? And the prosecution, they played it up to the jury straight out of a made-for-television CSI script. He was ramping it up. He used to only do one assault at a time. Now he was doing three, and thank God a super cop stepped in, and we stopped this madman before he's raping a dozen women on every shift. I mean, that's literally how they presented it to the jury, and the jury lapped it up. And to me, it was preposterous to think that he had committed these three sexual assaults all in one shift, and yet for some reason this guy who— I got to tell you, Daniel is a nice guy. Daniel is an unbelievable athlete. Daniel is not a scholar. Daniel is is never going to be confused with Einstein out mm. there. I mean, that's just not Daniel. But yet the prosecution painted this picture that somehow Daniel was so diabolical that he could have 13 victims. Um, he could have 36 different crimes he had committed at 17 different crime scenes. And yet... It didn't produce a single piece of direct forensic evidence and didn't produce a single independent eyewitness. And we'll only just touch the surface of this case during our talk. But I defy anybody who thinks, yeah, but they left this out. They left that out. Point to a single piece of direct forensic evidence or a single independent eyewitness. There is no one that could have this sort of crime spree and not have one or both of those things in multitudes and it didn't exist in this case there was a little bit of dna evidence and the prosecution kind of hung their hat on that but this turned out to be transfer dna is that right skin cell dna that was on the fly of his pants from a dairy skin cell dna and again that how it was presented to me because a lot of people don't realize how the criminal justice system works here in oklahoma county the prosecution doesn't even have to give you all of their evidence until 10 days before trial now normally you get it before the But but by law, they've got 10 days before trial. They can drop a bombshell on you on the 11th day. So we didn't I all I knew about the DNA evidence was that DNA was found on the fly of his uniform pants. And I got to tell you that I I remember going in the, the office meeting him with that day and we read him the riot act and we were trying to break him. And you got to tell us because we don't want to step on a line landmine in trial. What the hell happened? And he was like, it, it didn't. It didn't. We brought in DNA experts. 
and they said this DNA doesn't mean anything. Said one, if it's a sexual assault, how come there's no semen? How come there's no indicators of vaginal secretions? If it's a oral copulation, how come there's no saliva that's present? The only thing that they found were skin cells, and they found them in minute amounts, barely even traceable. But and even if people for whatever reason, because of the CSI effect, they want to believe at DNA on the fly of his pants, he's guilty. One thing you got to understand is they tested no other part of his clothing. He, he may have very well had that same DNA in his pockets. He may have had him on the cuff of his pants. He may have had him on the knee of his pants. We don't know because they didn't test those areas. But what we do know and what the prosecution did not disclose at trial was that not only did they find the DNA of Adaria Gardner, the 17-year-old accuser, they also found DNA belonging to a male, and they testified that, 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 D, that Daniel's DNA had been excluded as the contributor of that DNA profile. So they testified that there was male DNA that did not belong to Daniel along with Adaria Gardner. So if you're going to believe that Adaria Gardner's DNA, touch DNA, on the fly of his pants means that he raped her, then you also have to be saying that Daniel raped some man, so a fourth person on that shift, and that that man never came forward. You have to assert that he also raped some guy. You have to. If, if you're going to say that's what the DNA means, but what was more disturbing was the prosecution knew this and they didn't disclose it. Not only did they not disclose that they knew that there was male DNA there and that they just weren't going to talk about it. Another thing they didn't disclose is that their DNA expert is the mother-in-law of Detective Rocky Gregory. So it's a conflict of interest. What would have been the appropriate thing for them to do? Hire an outside DNA expert? Absolutely. Absolutely. Have, have an independent third party look at this DNA, or you simply either have a different person within your department test the DNA, not Elaine Taylor, or you have to have a different detective on the case. There are so many ways they could have handled this, but instead you have the mother-in-law who knows this is the biggest case of her son-in-law's career. He immediately got a huge promotion and all these awards because of this case, and she immediately retired as soon as the case was over. I got to tell you, Fox 25 there in Oklahoma City, they've done a pretty good right. job covering this stuff with her, uh, with that DNA expert. And I understand she retired just soon after Daniel was convicted, didn't she? Or she quit? She she did. Uh, Phil Cross over at Fox 25, the man is a bulldog. Yeah. And um, he did. Uh, and he's done several features on this case. And, and really, just to get to the truth, I mean, he's not championing Daniel Holtzclaw. He's championing the truth. And um, there were all these and they're still going on these secret hearings that Daniel Holtzclaw's own appellate lawyers are not allowed to attend. And all of this happened after it was disclosed that Elaine Taylor was the primary detective's mother in law, that she didn't disclose that there was male DNA also found on the fly of his pants. When all of that happened, she immediately out of nowhere retires and they start having all of these secret hearings and they start sealing all of these records. And Daniel comes out and says, I'm not allowed to attend these secret hearings and they won't even allow my attorney to attend these secret hearings. You got people who know anything about the history of criminal justice in uh, Oklahoma. I've never got to remember like the this. name Joyce Gilchrist. Joyce Gilchrist. And, right. and Elaine Taylor literally worked for Joyce Gilchrist during the time that she was exposed to someone that worked in the DNA lab that would literally take a carpet fiber and swear it was somebody's pubic hair and send them to the gas chamber. Is that right? Absolutely. Wow. I invite people, Google Joyce Gilchrist, Oklahoma, and it is a horror story. And Elaine Taylor, that was her protege. That's who she learned under. 
I've never heard of anything like this, these secret hearings. Uh, obviously, they are related to Daniel's appeal. Is that right? Yes, 100% they are. And, and here's all we know. This was actually a fellow at Fox jumped all over this. Uh, early on, we realized, how could we try to figure out what these secret meetings are about? And then the idea popped up. Wait a minute. There are security cameras outside of the courtroom of Judge Henderson's chambers, and those cameras are bound by freedom of information. You can get copies of those if you fill out a FOIA request. And so prompted the media to fill out a FOIA request, and they did, and they got the images of everyone who came and went from these secret trials. And guess who was coming and going? The detectives in the Daniel Holtzclaw case, the prosecutor in the Daniel Holtzclaw case, and Elaine Taylor's direct supervisor and attorneys for the city that would be involved in any sort of financial civil lawsuits also were invited into those meetings. So this was a damage control meeting is what these were. And and Daniel's own lawyers were not allowed to attend to figure out if this helped or hurt their client. I can't interpret the fact that they were so tight-lipped and secretive about these meetings other than thinking it's probably good news for Daniel and his appeal. I could be wrong about that, but what do you think? I hope so. I think a lot of what they met about, I think it was uncovered by what happened in Daniel Holtzclaw's trial. I think probably a lot of what they met with were other cases where Elaine Taylor's expert testimony was critical in convicting people. And I think they realized if this whole thing blows up, we have another Joyce Gilchrist on our hands and we have a whole bunch of cases that may be thrown out or overturned and this could become a financial disaster for Oklahoma County. And so I think that's an awful lot of what was going on in those meetings, but obviously they were also talking about Daniel Holtzclaw specifically, and I think they were talking about how do we deal with the fact that our linchpin evidence was this DNA, and we obviously misrepresented the importance of that DNA at trial. I mean, the uh, what was important, I don't know if you have it there, the quote from uh, Galen Giger, who was the uh, prosecutor in this case, I've got it here, right here, but his during his closing argument, I'll just read this one little section real quick, right. knowing that During the trial, their own expert testified that DNA is only touch DNA, could come from any part of your body, could come from your fingertips, could come from your forehead, could come from Daniel's penis, could come from anywhere. We don't know. It's just skin cell DNA, and it's in minuscule amounts, teeny amounts that were previously undetectable only a few years ago. They found no vaginal secretions or no indicators of vaginal secretions. They found no semen. They found no blood. They found no saliva. But in his closing argument to the jury, which we could not respond to, it's the last closing, part of Galen Giger's statement goes, I would suggest to you that the most important thing about Adaria Gardner is the fact that DNA from the walls of her vagina was transferred in vaginal fluids onto the outside and the inside, not of his pockets, Not of his cuff, not where he sits, but the exact location she says his penis came in contact. That that is a totally false statement. And he knew it was false, but he also knew it was the last thing that the jurors would hear. And when one or two jurors were interviewed later, they parroted that and said it was the DNA evidence that most critically affected their decision to convict. I know prosecutors have a little more leeway when they're making those closing arguments, but couldn't have Daniel's lawyer objected and said, Your Honor, he's completely mischaracterizing the evidence? What the prosecution is arguing, they're arguing that his first four words, I would, su- well, I would suggest, his first three words, they're saying that his I would suggest 
is what covered his bases. Mm. But he followed that with is the fact. I personally, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, would say that opened the door probably to an objection. But he started it with, I would suggest. I guarantee you, if you ask the jurors to repeat what his quote was, they all, they will all leave out the words, I would suggest. And they will harp on the fact that he said it was a fact. And I think that's where the problem lied. Galen Gigger is a very, very prepared prosecutor. This was not a slip of the tongue. This was calculated. He did it on purpose. He saved it for the last closing so that it would absolutely be the last thing that the members of those juries heard. And what people need to understand is that prosecutors are not the guys that come in wearing the white hats to save the day. Prosecutors are not seekers of justice. Prosecutors prosecute. That's what they do. That's how they measure their success. They don't go out there and try to seek truth and justice. That's for television. That's not for real life. Yeah, they're there to win. Brian, do you have any, I don't know, how much contact do you have with David and his family? Or Daniel? I'm sorry, yeah, Uh, Daniel and his family these days. You know, honestly, I have as much contact as I want to have with them. I could have a lot more. It's one of these things I'm hoping to come out with a very, very in-depth podcast about the Holtzclaw trial. And in that podcast, I will release every single bit of discovery evidence, everything. Nothing will be held back. There's a lot to do to put that together. So I've been working on that. And one of the things I had to decide early on was I get a lot of criticism from people that say, you just bought and paid for by the Holtzclaw family. They, they're spending money to keep you out there advocating for Daniel. That's 100% not true. So I've kind of limited my contact. I used to talk to Daniel at least once a week. I haven't talked to him that much lately because I felt if I'm going to prepare to, to continue to advocate for him, I don't want one, I don't want to become emotionally involved um, with Daniel. And I want to be able to remain unbiased as I can. And I want to remain open to the possibility that if someone can present to me a piece of evidence that he's guilty, that I will accept that evidence as his guilt. Because I told Daniel when I first got on his defense team, and I told him after he was shipped away to prison, if anyone can prove to me that a single one of the allegations against you is true, I will never advocate for you again. And to this day, years later, nobody has been able to do that. And, I, and I'm not blind. I, I Honestly, I would gladly accept some piece of evidence that proved he was guilty because then I could give this up and it would give me a lot more free time. So you're not doing this for any personal benefit? You're not like out there making money off of this? Right. No, I, I don't make a dime off of it. I haven't monetized any of my efforts. I intentionally don't put things like Google ads on the HoltzClawTrial.com website. Um, when I do things like interviews like this, you know, nobody asks for any sort of a, a fee or donation to be made or anything like that. I provide the videos that I've stuck out there are not monetized through YouTube or anything else. I want the information to be available to everybody because I want people to make their own mind up. And I think if they look at this the way I did and they look at every piece of evidence, they have to agree that Daniel Holtzclaw, one, was never proven guilty, and two, that the evidence actually overwhelmingly suggests that he is not guilty. And if you can do this to a police officer, imagine how easy it is to do it to just the man on the streets. When I was telling my wife about this case last night, one question she asked me that I wanted to ask you, why would they do this to one of their own? Why would they throw one of their own away like this? 
You know, I, and that sort of question comes from the mindset, I think, for people who watch a lot of these TV shows and they think that there has to be this underlying conspiracy. Mm. I don't think there was a conspiracy. There was simply confirmation bias and really, really bad police work. And you have to understand, this isn't a department that conspired to find Daniel Holtzclaw guilty. This is literally Detective Davis and Detective Gregory determining from day one that Daniel Holtzclaw must be some sort of a, of a serial offender, and then they went looking for the evidence that supported that idea. They never once went looking for evidence that would have shown that he didn't do it. And any time they were confronted with evidence that proved that Daniel Holtzclaw couldn't have been this offender or couldn't have done the things that they said he did, they simply found excuses to dismiss it. And I've tried to always make sure that that's not what I'm doing when I advocate for the fact that he was wrongly convicted. But I got to tell you, I'm actually shocked with the many criminal justice buffs that are out there that nobody can come forward to me with a piece of evidence that I don't scratch my head and go, wow, I don't have an answer for that. It just hasn't it just hasn't happened. And so I think when you have really bad police work and then you have accusers who are willing to lie, either because that's just in their nature to lie or what I think really happens in most cases is they know that they're lying, but they think that they're supporting the real victims. And so they yeah. think they justify their lie because, well, yeah, I know I'm lying, but he really is a bad guy and we need to make sure he's locked up. You know, that's exactly the only person who has ever um, prosecuted for lying about Daniel Holtzclaw. Uh, what is it? Shanice Barksdale. And she admitted that she lied, but only after they charged her with lying. She came up with facts that absolutely they knew that she was lying about it. He had plenty of other people who admitted to lying, but they, they admitted to it pretty quickly and she wouldn't. So they actually criminally charged her with lying. Um, and she finally admitted that the whole reason that she lied was she thought she was supporting the real victims. I think it's, it's obvious in Shadarion Hill's quote about, well, even if he really didn't do these things, she thought she was supporting the fact that, well, he's a bad guy and he deserves to go to prison anyway. So Ben Crump is a civil lawyer that's representing a lot of these women in you know multi-million dollar suits against Oklahoma City, right? Right. They're against Daniel. They're against the city of Oklahoma City. And then they name like our chief of police and, and some other individual supervisors. But, you know, they're they're all looking for very big cash payouts and they're probably going to get them. You think so? Even with the, yeah. this damage control that's going on right now? I, I think so. Of the 13 accusers, uh, 12 of them filed lawsuits. Then we have another accuser that popped up, um, this uh, uh, Demetria Campbell. She popped up. She also has a lawsuit going. And um, at, at some point, they're all just going to be offered some sort of a settlement agreement, and, and they'll get it. And then you'll fast forward a year or two. What I really hope happens, I wish they get these civil suits done. I wish they give these women um, their blood money. And then once they've gotten it and they've spent it, once that has happened and you let a little bit of time go by, that's when you're finally going to have those cracks that are going to happen. And one of these two of these women are going to admit that this was all a lie and that it didn't happen. But none of them are going to admit to this while there's still the idea of these million dollar checks out there that they haven't cashed yet. And so I want that part to be over. I want them to get their money and to blow the money. Yeah. And then I can actually approach some of these women in the future and say, now, let me show you where your story doesn't make any sense and see if they'll crack or see if some of them will mature, get off the streets, get off the drugs, and they'll realize that their actions 
cost this fine young man his life. And maybe one of these 13 people will actually have a conscience and come forward and say, you know what, I lied. I hope so, too, because there's a lot of them. And I understand that even some of the ones that were proven to be lying in court are still participating in this lawsuit. Absolutely. every All but one. There's a Florine Mathis is the only woman who didn't file a, uh, a lawsuit. And her allegation was, was pretty mild. Um, her allegation was just that her breasts were exposed to Daniel. And, uh, you know, so she didn't, I mean, there, I don't know what her damages would have been for her breasts being exposed. Um, but she never filed a lawsuit and, uh, and everybody else did. And I, I gotta tell you, I, they all filed, they all got lawyers very, very quickly. And at, and at trial, a couple of them tried to, uh, tried to deny that they had uh, that they had been speaking to lawyers because they hadn't filed their lawsuits yet. But one of them, like Adaria Gardner, like so many young people do, she didn't think twice about it. When she meet, went to meet with her lawyer, she checked in on Facebook. And so she oh, testified geez. that she hadn't talked to a lawyer. And, of course, I had already gone through her social media. Boom, well, you checked in with the civil rights lawyer on this date. Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot about that. You know, and Adaria Gardner is one of those. You know, we talked about how the the DNA evidence in that case is questionable. One thing that people often don't talk about with her case, too, that makes it very questionable, literally within an hour and a half of her supposedly being raped on the porch of her house by Daniel Holtzclaw, her mother comes home, and her mother even testified, well, her mother at the time told police, we have it recorded, um, told police in the interview that when she got home, her daughter told her, hey, I met this really hot cop today. Have you ever heard a rape victim, especially a rape victim of a police officer, describe their rapist as this hot cop they nope. met just an hour and a half ago? No. Unbelievable. No, there's so many crazy things about this case. That's why I think your podcast is going to be great once you get it up and running, just because of all the... It sounds overwhelming when you go, well, he was convicted of 13 of these charges. People but, hear that number, and that's, you know, you go for... I, I'm not I'm not blind to why people think he's guilty. Number of accusers, yeah. 13. Well, people have to understand there was actually far more accusers than that. There was actually 21 total accusers. Eight of them admitted that they were lying prior to trial. Five of them after that, five of the 13 that were left, he was found not guilty of. Eight plus five is 13 right there. So if you're going to say 13 accusers means he's guilty, but what if I can prove to you that 13 accusers were also found to be lying? Yeah. Um, sure, you know, I'm... that's a, that's a big deal that a lot of people don't don't realize. You know, you've also got the profile of the accusers. For whatever reason, people have wrapped their arms around this. Oh, they're the perfect victims. He knew that not only could he avoid any witnesses, any direct forensic evidence being left behind, but he was also such a diabolical criminal that he also knew that he could target these women and nobody would ever believe him. Then people point to his, his patrol car GPS as if somehow GPS proves you sexually assaulted somebody. If after this podcast, anyone listening is pulled over by a police officer and written a ticket, there will be GPS that shows that that officer had contact with you at that corner. Well, does that mean that he raped you? No, it means he had contact with you. Daniel has always admitted to all of the contact with each and every one of these accusers. As a matter of fact, the, the only determining factor between whose accusations went to trial and whose didn't was whether or not Daniel called you in or there was proof you had contact. That was it. Not proof of a sexual assault, but simply proof of contact. If you ever had contact, if he ever wrote a ticket about you or ever called you in on his radio and you wanted to say that he raped you, you would have been one of the accusers that made it to trial. 
That's a pretty low standard. It's an extremely low standard, especially when you're dealing with a segment of the population who absolutely, by their own design, has no credibility. Each one of these accusations can be knocked down individually once you dig into the details of them. And that's why I think your podcast is going to be great at. Well, I appreciate it. The hardest part with it is... I started, started, uh, you know, and I may have to rely on your expertise at some point in the future, but I started laying this thing out and all of a sudden it became like 35 episodes. And I thought, God, I'm <laughs> going to lose all my listeners come episode 12 or, or 13. I got to find a way to get this down to about nine episodes, but how do I do it without leaving all this stuff out? So that's when I made the decision that my, my podcast is going to have to be condensed down into just so many episodes, but I'm still going to make this commitment to all of the listeners that I will publish every single piece of discovery evidence. Nothing will not be, no one will ever say, what about this? It will all be there. And then you will decide for yourself whether or not one, there was enough evidence to convict him and two, whether or not he really did it. Because believe it or not, those are two independent ideas right there. Do you know what the status of his appeal is right now? How it's oh looking? Oh my gosh, it, it is just floundering out there. They're having all of these secret hearings. And until these secret hearings are over, the uh, the appeals court isn't going to make a ruling. And um, my projection is we won't get a ruling from the appeals court until the end of 2019, maybe not till 2020. I have absolute zero faith in the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeal. So I think they're going to deny his appeal. From there, he can can try to compel the Supreme Court to look at his case. They don't have to. I'm hoping that they do. Honestly, the best chance that he has, uh, the public greatly affected the fact he was found guilty. I think the public has the power to greatly affect him getting a new trial. He will, he'll never, they'll never just open up the prison doors and say, oops, we got it wrong. You can leave. The most he can hope for is a second trial. If he gets a second trial, there'll only be eight accusers. He can never be retried for the ones that he was found not guilty. And I guarantee you, given a second shot at this, he will prevail. Well, let's hope that happens. And I really appreciate your time, Brian. It's and it's great listening to your like encyclopedic knowledge of this case. You know, I don't think there's anyone on the planet that knows more about it than you do. Well, hey, I appreciate it. And I appreciate any opportunity to, uh, to you know, I didn't know when you invited me on if you were a supporter, a doubter, and I didn't ask. I don't care. I'm not one who thinks I need to preach to the choir. But, uh, you know, I appreciate, I know Daniel appreciates uh, the support um, that you have for him. And I invite your listeners, even if you're in doubt, go to HoltzClawTrial.com, read the documents that are there, Google it. Uh, Michelle Mulkin has an unbelievable two-part series. I don't know if you've watched that. I have, Uh, yeah. That really, really, I, I'm, in, I'm in it, so of course it's really good. Oh, of course, um, yeah. And uh, it, it's on, it really lines it out there. It's bias, of course. I'm biased. Um, but I, I defy you to point at anything that she points out and say that's not true. Yeah, and she does little updates every now and then when new news comes out about you know, DNA analysis in the case and things like you, that, doesn't she? You know, she, she is a bulldog. Her and I don't agree on politics, but the woman is an absolute bulldog, and she actually, the the— uh, a supporter of Daniel's got a hold of her and um, said, you, you need to champion this case. She read a, a thing I, I posted right after the case that pointed out the flaws in finding him guilty. She contacted me on the phone. I, I don't listen to the conservative talking heads, so I didn't yeah. know who she was. And she said, I want to fly out tomorrow. And I only have this one condition, total transparency. You have to answer every question I propose to you, and you have to be willing to show me every single piece of discovery evidence. I don't want anything left behind. I don't care if it's embarrassing to Daniel or damning to Daniel. I want to see it all. 
She spent an entire day going through everything, took copies of it back with her. She has been an unflappable advocate for Daniel ever since. I think she's put her reputation on the line. I'm a huge fan of hers. And um, when Daniel eventually gets set free one day, he owes a big debt of gratitude to her. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he realizes that, too. And let me ask you something. I know that they're keeping secret where he is, which facility he is in. Is, is the prison system actually looking out for his safety and well-being by doing that? Um, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Daniel has never asked. He didn't ask to go to the facility that he's at. He didn't ask to be there under a, a pseudonym. He's there under an assumed name. Now, he doesn't use that assumed name. When, when he calls me and you get the recorded thing, it's his real name. He won't use the pseudonym that they gave him. Um, I'm told that while staff members use the pseudonym when they refer to him, because that's how he is on the rolls and all, other inmates don't. They all know who he is. They all have televisions. They've seen the specials that look really damning towards him. They haven't seen Michelle Mulkin's special, but they've seen the ones that, that uh, TV One and some of the others did that looked really bad towards him. The good thing is, Daniel, he's, he's in an area, he's in a what you call a pod with dozens of other inmates. He is, he's been there three almost three years now, two and a half years, he has he, no write-ups. He's an exemplary inmate. He helps people train and work out. He gets along with all the other inmates of all other races. Daniel is a good guy, and that's, that's reflected even while this terrible thing is happening to him. He's maintained the character of who he is, and he has, he's had zero issues. I know people. some people wish some of the most horrific things I read about online that they oh, yeah, wish I'm of sure. him in prison. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint them. None of those things are happening, but he's still locked up and he still deserves his freedom. But it is encouraging to people that support him is that he has been very safe from day one. He interacts with inmates on a regular basis and the inmates actually like and look up to him. Well, I hope he keeps his hopes up and stays mentally with it. I, I, I've listened to a couple of those Facebook live calls that he has with his sister and sure. the guy he sounds a little bummed out sometimes, which is understandable given the situation. He is. I mean, he's surrounded by criminals and yeah. such. And, uh, you know, he's locked up. He can't do what he wants to do. He had this whole career planned out. He had this whole idea of what the criminal justice system was, and it totally turned on him. And so, no, I mean, I, I'm so glad that he is at least has some of these things going in his favor while he's incarcerated. Yeah. And fortunately, the doors have not closed on him for his appeal. The problem is the wheels, we are so quick to convict but we are so slow to undo these things. And people have to understand that literally thousands of people have had their convictions overturned as being wrong convictions. But unfortunately, on average, it takes 10 to 12 years. We can convict a person within the year, but it takes us up to a dozen years to right that wrong. And something is wrong with that. Yeah, he could be well into his 30s by that time. Right? Uh, he, he, will, he will have lost so much of his life. I mean, he already lost the girlfriend who he thought he was going to marry. If he's locked up much longer, he could start losing family members who are, are aging. Um, yeah. And there's just so much. He's, he's missed his 20s. I think he's going to miss a good part of his 30s. But hopefully we can write this at some time. And I just hope that he comes out the man of the exact same character that he went in. And if he does that, he can be an unbelievable advocate to try to change our system so that other people don't fall victim to what he did. Well, thanks again for your time, Brian. And could we talk again sometime if new stuff happens in this case? Maybe. Absolutely. I'd, I'd be willing to give you, you and your listeners updates anytime. 
All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And have a good night. Hey, thank you. Good night. All right. Bye. Thanks to Brian Bates of Bates Investigates. And make sure you check out his website, HoltzClawTrial.com. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast. Kevin's website is Incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening. Thank you.